again. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 4, or Psalm 4, better said that way actually, Psalm 4. This, it's been our habit the last several years to be working our way through the Psalms together in the summer. We don't do them in order, so don't think that we've spent the last four or five years doing the first three Psalms, and so this is, you're in for a long ride this morning. You are not. Um, at least I pray you're not. Um, we're looking though this morning at Psalm 4. And I want to set, it, set us up a little bit to um, prepare to hear the word read, so give me a few minutes if you would, please. In the summer of 1998, I was trying to muster up the courage to ask out the cute girl that I saw in the choir from a distance, my first summer in St. Louis. And during that time, just about every time I went in, got in my car and turned the radio on, which I rarely do these days, I guess, um, the song, there's a song I heard that was popular in the day by a band called Eve Six. Now, I had to look that up to remember the name of the band because they've done nothing since then as far as I know. But part of the song went like this. Want to put my tender heart in a blender, watch it spin around to a beautiful oblivion. Now, in hindsight, this was a breakup song. But at the, mo- at the time, I chuckled every time I heard this, and literally every time I went in my car and turned on the radio, I heard this song and heard those words, and I chuckled. Because as I was observing this girl from afar, who is now my wife, so we'll skip to the end, it's now my wife, um, I kept thinking, does she like me or not? Does she notice me or not? Oh, did I say that stupid thing? Did she hear me say that stupid thing? You know, my, my heart was in this turmoil for the better part of these three months as I'm getting to know this girl. And those words seemed to echo my sentiments pretty directly. Even, again, even though it was a breakup song, I didn't realize that at the time. Just that phrase, put my heart in, my tender heart in a blender and watch it spin around to a beautiful oblivion. That's what I felt like what was happening in the innermost part of my being. I eventually mustered up the courage and asked her out and she said yes for some reason or another. Then the next April, I was another decision point and I, and I, think, I realized that at that point I think I had enough capital to ask her to marry me in terms of relational capital to ask her to marry me and I felt in a pretty good place that she would actually say yes. And so I came up with my scheme of how I was going to propose, and and part of that was this. I talked to friends of mine, a guitarist and another drummer, um, I played percussion as well, um, that we're going to serenade her with this song as as a part of the process of me asking her to marry me. And the song is In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel. Now, if you were alive in the 80s, this is homage to John Cusack's classic movie, Say Anything, of course. But part of the, part of the, the lyrics go like this. In your eyes, the light, the heat... In your eyes, I am complete. In your eyes, I see the doorway to a thousand churches. In your eyes, the resolution of all the fruitless searches. Oh, I see the light and the heat in your eyes. Oh, I want to be that complete. I want to touch the light, the heat I see in your eyes. And I'm blessing you by not singing that to you, I promise, this morning. But what that song did in the midst of my, in my relationship with, with who, who is now my wife was this. I thought at the time that it accurately captured my thoughts and my emotions. But in hindsight, what I realized that those words were doing, because those words were far above where I was at that time, even from what I understood, it was giving giving me something to which I might aspire. It was giving me words that I wanted to be true of me someday, which they increasingly are. That that I would find delight and joy in knowing my wife, and then I would find the, the resolution to the things that I was looking for in her and not in no one else. I start here this morning because, believe it or not, this is actually how the Psalms work in our lives. You see, first of all, they give us words to express our thoughts, our desires, and emotions when we, when we may not have words. 
that, that we can read in God's word, scripture, reflection on life in God's world, in the broken world as, as such as it is, and we can hear expression that says, yes, that's exactly how I'm feeling. Even thinking about the end of Psalm 88 where the psalm ends with the phrase, darkness is my only friend. We resonate with these words. We resonate with these expressions. But there's something else that the psalms do that we need to be, be aware of, especially this morning as we look to Psalm 4. Not only are they giving expression to what we already know that we feel and think and long for, but the other thing that we're doing is that they're forming in us those very same parts of us to reflect the word of God in us. They're giving shape to our emotions even. They're giving shape to our thoughts. Because even when we don't know what word it is that we are looking for and longing for, they give us words to give expression to it. Now what's fascinating about, the psalm, about psalm 4 is that if you look at the, the subheading there, it'll say something along these lines, to the choir master with the stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Now that's an, that's an inscription that's given to tell us that David wrote this. And as, as we'll see in just a moment, psalm 4 is a psalm of personal lament. David is in trouble. He's got an enemy who's after him, and he's putting words to his, his feeling and his words to his pursuit of God. But the first words of, the, of this description are important to us, where he writes, to the choir master. That's significant because of this. David is indeed writing about his personal experience as an individual, as the king, who's being pursued most likely by his son, trying to keep for, in the fear of his own life. But this psalm was written down to be sung by God's people. It is the personal expression of an individual, and yet it was put to pen was put to paper, so to speak, and written down and preserved, so that we might bear the fruit of these words and the truth of these words in our lives. That God's people might pray them together. That we might sing them, even these personal words, even in this corporate setting. And so, as I read now, with this in mind, I want to read to us from Psalm four, beginning in verse one. And I'll read the whole of the psalm. Hear now the word of the Lord. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray as we consider these words together this morning. Gracious, merciful God, would you send out your light and your truth? By your spirit, would you guide us to the place where you dwell? That as we consider this your holy word now, that we would walk away people changed because we've seen you, because we've beheld you. Not because of the magic of a formula and certainly not because of my words and left to themselves. But would you, Holy Spirit, would you be the one who so meets us where we are and infuses these words with your power that we could not help but walk away and be changed? In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. I wonder if you find prayer difficult. I suspect many of us do. As odd as it is for a room full of Christians to voice, I suspect that most of us could admit, could, would admit that at some point in our lives, prayer has been challenging for us. 
I've actually been surprised, in my, was actually surprised in my first few years of ministry how often I heard students make that statement that prayer was difficult for them. Why is prayer so difficult even for God's people who hold these things to be true? I don't know how familiar you are with the TV show Seinfeld, but it was famously ascribed, described once as the show about nothing. What a fascinating description of a TV show that was at the centerpiece of Thursday night television in the 1990s. It was a simple, simple in concept, so to speak, for a show about nothing, of course. It followed four friends and a revolving cast of odd acquaintances in their daily lives, as they often did that, nothing. Now, I say that it was about four friends because the creators of the show admitted in an interview that the show had two basic rules, no hugging and no learning. In other words, as they wrote the episodes, as they put the show together, they didn't want any of the, char the main characters to hug or to learn. They wanted to make sure that the characters were not emotionally connected and that they would never change. I guess that's what we thought of comedy in the 90s. Believe it or not, I think these two statements get at, get at why prayer is the, cha is the challenge that it can be for us. You see, when we talk about the difficulty of prayer, some of us might give the, the, what we would call the obvious or the easy answer, which is true. We're distracted. Of course we are. We're more, we, we may feel more distracted than ever these days. Now, there's another answer, the good Presbyterian answer, so to speak, and I suspect some of us might consider ourselves good Presbyterians. Please don't worry if you're not. I know that God is sovereign over all things, so why should I pray? Again, it's an honest statement, it's an honest question, it's an honest query. But actually, I think it runs deeper than that. You see, I think prayer is a struggle for God's people, for, even for us, because we're afraid of hugging, so to speak. Because prayer is a declaration of dependence. It is a fundamental admission that we are not enough. We feel guilty for interrupting God. We, we assume that we should be able to handle most things on our own, don't we? Our emotion, emotions seem trivial. We're convinced that we should be able to take care of whatever it is all on our own. But what does verse one actually display for us? Look again at verse one of, chapter four, of Psalm four. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Do you hear what David's doing? With great boldness, David is approaching God looking for an answer. The first thing he says is, answer me, God. But David doesn't do this because he's earned enough or because he's entitled. He does it because he knows that this is what God does and this is who he is. Again, look at the middle line there in verse 1. You have given me relief when I was in distress. More literalistically in the Hebrew, it says this, I was, in, I was in a tight spot, I was in a narrow place and I couldn't move, and you set me free. This is who God is as well. Notice what, what he says. Notice what he says in the second part, or the first part. He says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. That David is acknowledging that God himself is the source of any rightness that David might find in himself. Any faithfulness that David would experience comes from God himself. This is who he is. God is one who answers his people. He is the one who's answered them in the past and will answer them in the future. So where does David lead us as we look at the struggle to pray in our own lives? Where does he lead us? In particular, as we consider even our emotions as they play into this situation. The first thing that I want, you, want us to point out as David walks his way, walks his way through, the, we walk our way through David's experience here is this. One of the first things he does is he invites us to acknowledge the hurt that we've experienced. 
Again, look at verse two, it sets the stage for everything that follows. David says this, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? David's admitting that even the words that he's heard and that others are hearing are, are painful. They've hurt him. He's more concerned, it's, it's, he's concerned about something more than simply his reputation. His honor has been turned to shame, the very core of who he is. The central aspects of his identity that he would celebrate have been destroyed through insults. He's, he's looking at his life and he's saying, this is hurts, this is painful. This is having a detrimental effect on how I see myself, how I see my God, and how I see my world. When will it stop, he asks more than once. Now notice how he leads us to respond. In the second part of verse 2, he says this, How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? You see what he's doing. He's acknowledging the absence of truth in what he's hearing. The words he's hearing and believing are, not, are simply not true, and he has to put words to that. They have no substance. They have no grounding in reality. Those speaking them are merely hungry for lies. They're searching after ways to find things that are not true about him. But notice what, where he goes on in verse 3. He says this, but know, again, speaking to these who would oppose him, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. David confronts his opponents with yet a greater truth. The God of the universe has bound himself to his people such that none can snatch them out of his hand. God is putting his commitment to his people on display, and David knows that. He realizes that. In the midst of being surrounded by, by words that are not true, by lies and deceit and hurt, David clings to the faithfulness of his God in the midst of this. Now notice there he speaks specifically, he says that God has set apart the godly for himself. This is what David, where David finds his hope, that God has called him out, that he belongs to God first and foremost. This being set apart works something like this. Now, the, I'm going to warn you ahead of time, this analogy is going to break down, but I hope that it helps. It's something like going camping, humanly speaking, that is. You show up to your campsite, you show up to the campsite, to the campgrounds, and you begin to drive around and see what's available. You might, and what might, work, what might work best for you. You had the distance from the water, the distance from the bathrooms, the distance from other campers, and so on. You pick a spot, you pay for it, and you begin setting it up. Now, from our experience, invariably, you're going to see things as you're setting up that you didn't see before. Other campers may move into spots closer to you than, you, than you're comfortable with. There may, they, there may be more bugs or flies because of standing water than, you're familiar, than you would like. But at some point, the tent is set up, the fire is lit, the chairs are set up, and you realize that you're not going to move at all. You're there for the night. No matter what else may come, you realize moving is going to be too much of a pain, so we're going to stay right put where we are. Now again, this breaks down here, of course. But I want you to see that part, that's part of what David's realization is, that God has bound himself with him. God has set up camp with you, if you will, in David's life, and he's not going anywhere. Now, it's not because David is the best spot. It's not because of, of who David is in any sense, but it's because God has simply set his love on him and has bound himself to him. For us, can you acknowledge the hurt in your life through prayer? Can you go to God? Have you gone to God with the ways that you have been hurt? even by something so simple as the words of those around you? Can you acknowledge the lack of truth? Do you find yourself clinging to thoughts and to beliefs and to perspectives that you know not to be true but they feel more real than anything else because that's what's freshest in your ears? Can you acknowledge the lies that you're being told? And do you see God, that God has set you apart for himself? That God is not going anywhere no matter what you've done, no matter what you do, no matter where you've failed, no matter where you've let others down, no matter where you've let him down, 
Do you see that he has set up camp, so to speak, in your life and that he will remain there? We know that this is true because this is exactly what the scriptures tell us that Jesus did. That he was the eternal second person of the Trinity who set up camp in this place to be near to us, to let us know that we are his and that he's not going anywhere. Can you acknowledge the hurt? But notice what else David does looking again at, looking again at verses 4 and 5. Notice how he responds to what's wrong in, the way, in his life. In fact, in the face of such opposition, in particular in the lies that seem to be flowing so freely, the right response is indeed anger. It's what we see in verse 4. Notice what he says there. He says, be angry and do not sin. And we'll see in a moment that Paul is going to pick up these words in Ephesians chapter 4. But for the moment, I want you to, just to hear this thought. The reality of our lives is this. There is much that is happening in the world in which, for which anger is indeed the right response. It is right to look at injustice, to look at racism, to look at the, the, the death of the unborn, to look at the death of the aged, to look at the ways that we corrupt, that we corrupt one another and that our society is corrupt and respond with anger. That is often the right response and we need to know that there's a freedom to be angry. But how does anger play in our world today? For some, it's a sign of strength, right? For, some, for others, it's a sign of weakness or even a stereotype that gives another reason to dismiss them altogether. And then there was that incident on February 23rd, 1985, when Indiana basketball coach Bobby Knight, in an explosion of, ra of anger and rage, picked up his chair and threw it onto the court. For Coach Knight, that became a time of simply being dismissed. If you, if you don't remember that, it was all over the news. And from what I understand, it wasn't actually the first time that he had done that, but it might have been the last. But it made him out to be this caricature. Our anger does that for us, right? Our anger does that. It makes people want to simply dismiss us. But how does David lead us? If anger is not necessarily evil in and of itself, where does he lead us? Notice in the second part of verse 4, in fact, he leads us indeed to silence. He says, ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. Anger indeed is not wrong, but what we do with it can be detrimental in many, many, many ways. In fact, as the Apostle Paul quotes these words in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 25, he says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one body. Be angry and do not sin. And then the Apostle goes on to say this, Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You see, silence is indeed part of the right response of anger because of what we're tempted to do when we are angry. We need to be told more often than not, don't send that tweet, right? Don't send the email, don't send the text. Because when it comes out of anger, we say things that we won't mean, that we will indeed regret, and that will indeed harm us or harm other people. We have to face that reality. And somehow, very knowingly, David says this. He says, think it over. Take some time to ponder it. Be silent. Don't say anything. Words have harmed me. The last thing I need to do is respond with more words that will do more harm, is in essence is what he's saying. But notice where he builds on this in verse 5. He says this. He says simply this. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. What is he calling us to there? There's some who see in verses 4 and 5 actually that he's continuing to speak to those who have wronged him. And so to hear the, the, the call to them to, resp to respond with right sacrifices and to put their trust in the Lord, he's calling them to repentance. But no matter who the audience here is, the, the, the words are always helpful, aren't they? To respond to our anger with a thought that says, maybe this isn't all about me. 
Because in, a, in the moments of anger, when we want to respond to crush our opponent, we want to do harm, we want to do destruction, we want revenge, we want vengeance. And the call is, it's not about you. And so the call is to worship, the call is to offer the sacrifice in the Old Testament times. The call is to put your trust in the Lord as the one who will make things right because things are not right. There are no, there are no doubt in our lives, innumerable situations in which anger, anger is the faithful, honest, and appropriate response. And yet we need the wisdom of the text here to, to guide us in this, to say, live with, face your anger, but consider it. Take the time to reflect on what's making you mad. Take your, take your time to reflect on what intent you, you and you're pursuing in this. Are you simply pursuing the destruction of another human being and their reputation because how you've been hurt? Is it simple revenge? The gospel answer is no. We need, to, we need to examine ourselves and find submission to God. And so he calls us to put our trust in the Lord. Now, if we're not careful, the hurt that we feel and the anger that can result, left on its own, will lead us to bitterness or despair. It's what's most likely behind the honest question of verse 6. No, look, look again with me at verse 6. He says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? The question, is the, the question behind this is this, will this ever stop? Will the hurt, will the pain, will the frustration that I feel ever go away? Will things ever get better? David's response, again, is to pray and to ask God to act based on what he needs most. David's instruction for us is this in verses 6 and 7 is simply this, to define what is good. Notice what he says in the second part of verse 6. He actually turns his, his, his gaze upward to the, to the Father and says this, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Let us see your face, O Lord, is what he asks for. This is the gaze of delight and committed love. It is not the gaze of suspicion or the stare of judgment and condemnation. He doesn't want God to look on him and say, Please just tell me that I'm right. He needs to know with, with the Father that he's okay and that he's going to be okay. In these words, we might, we might note Aaron's blessing, a fuller version of Aaron's blessing of the people from Numbers chapter 6, where we read this. This is Aaron the high priest praying to over the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. We often end our services with those words to remind us that what we desperately need the most is the Lord's gaze upon us, to know his delight, to know his love to be set free from condemnation and suspicion and judgment. I remember as an elementary school kid in my first, one of my first band concerts, it, it, it looked something like this. In our, our, my elementary school was rather small and so we didn't have much opportunity to play, with, play our instruments with, other, with a big group of people. And so every year our, my town would put on, the, the school district would put on this event called Bandorama where all the elementary school kids and all the middle school kids and all the high school kids, all the bands in our whole town would get together in this gym and play this massive concert. And group by group would be going through. And my oldest, my, the brother right above me who's now the band director in our home school district was in the high school at the time, he was a senior. And I can remember finishing my first concert ever in this big stage and wondering, how did we do, how did we do? And of course the people applause because that's what a room full of parents are gonna do when their kids play their instruments. But I remember looking around and trying to find my brother and then actually looking all the way backwards, turning all the way around and being able to have a direct line of sight to my brother Dave. And he was doing this and saying, good job, good job. That's what I needed, I needed his gaze. I needed to see his eyes to know that I did okay. That's what the image is given for us here. That's what David longs for. He needs to know that there's something good beyond what his circumstances are telling him, beyond the hurt and the confusion and the frustration that he feels. 
But there's something else that comes into play here as well. Look with me at verse 7. We read this. You, praying to the Lord, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. Not only does he see the Lord's gaze, but he sees the gift of the Lord's joy. It maybe seemed good to be too good to be true, but this realization is profound. Because what David is acknowledging here is that knowing the Lord, seeing his gaze, seeing his favor upon him, is greater than any amount of prosperity that he could see in his opponent's possession. The idea of grain and wine abounding in this day and age would have been an indication that they, 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 that they actually did know the favor of the Lord, that God had been good to them because they had enough to eat and they had enough to drink. And yet what David is acknowledging is that even more than that is the joy of the gaze of the Father that it gives him. It can be hard to believe for us. Joy is so difficult to fight for and to find. In 1838, at age 20, slave, former slave Frederick Douglass escaped from slavery at the age of 20. And upon his being set free, he later reflected with these words, anguish and grief like darkness and rain may be depicted, but gladness and joy like the rainbow defy the skill of pen or pencil. What he's acknowledging there is that there is such a thing as joy that he knew, when he knew the joy of freedom, he knew what it was feeling. But to be able to communicate that, to be able to write that down was far more than he could begin to do or acknowledge. And it was far easier to focus on what was difficult and what was, what was tough. And yet what David is acknowledging here for us is this. There is joy in the Lord that defies even our circumstances. How do you define what's good? How do you define what's safe, what's freeing, what's comfortable? what's helpful for you. Can you see the Lord look upon you and, and see with delight? Or do you, only see his gaze, do you only see him as one who's looking on you with suspicion? One who knows you and doesn't like you very much, who's not a big fan and would rather have somebody else on his side? Where, what do you look, what do you see when you see the Lord looking at you? David's invitation is that there is indeed delight and that there is indeed joy in this. And finally, look at verse 8. Notice where the psalm lands. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone make me dwell in safety. What a beautiful picture, isn't it? You alone make me dwell in safety. I will lie down in peace. For a lot of us, that's going to translate to our lives like this. My checklist is done. The day is over. It's getting dark outside. I'm getting tired, and I can go to bed in peace knowing that I've accomplished everything I've needed to today. That's the sense there. And yet, are we really that ever done? Our checklist for the day may be done, but are we, do we really ever, are we really ever done? And yet, what David himself has found in the midst of all of this, in the midst of hurt and anger and fighting for this joy, facing his own despair, he looks at the Lord and he realizes in, that he can lay down and sleep no matter what, because the Lord is alone is the one who makes him dwell in safety. Graham Greene's novel, The Power and the Glory, has several fascinating characters in it, one of the least of whom is not, one, one simply known as this. He's known by as the name the Whiskey Priest. By all intents and purposes and outward, outward signs, he is a failure, this Whiskey Priest. Because as a, as a priest, you probably don't want a nickname of the Whiskey Priest as one indication of that. And he's living in a time in Mexico where actually the Catholic Church was outlawed and he's being chased for his very life. But near the end of the novel, we find him in despair, wondering what's coming next, fearing his own death. And he write, we, we read these words. He felt only an immense disappointment because he had to go to God empty-handed, with nothing done at all. It seemed to him at that moment that it would have been quite easy to have been a saint. It would have only, he would, it would have only needed a little self-restraint and a little courage. 
He felt like someone who had missed happiness by seconds in an appointed place. He knew now that at the end, of the, that at the end there was only one thing that counted, to be a saint. Do you, hear, do you hear his lack of rest at the end of his life? He's looking at his life and all he sees is disappointment because he, doesn't, he can only come to God empty-handed. He realizes the mistakes that he's made. He realizes his own failures and he sees no hope. He says he's missed happiness only by seconds. And his only comfort is this. If only I would have tried a little harder. If only I would have shown a little bit more self-control and a little bit more courage, then I would be okay. Then I'd be much happier. We resonate with that, don't we? We know that feeling that says, if only I would have done a little bit better at my job, if only I would have been more present with my children, then things would be different. We look at our lives, though, and what do we see? We see a lack of rest. And yet the promise of the gospel, the promise of Jesus, is that the way this psalm ends is the way that it can end for us. You see, because this is what happens. In verse 1, David asks for grace. He doesn't ask God because he is entitled. He's in, he asks God because God is the one who is gracious, who is full of, who is abounding with steadfast love. He asks God for grace, and what does he find at the end of the psalm? He finds peace. Beloved, this is our hope in Christ. Our hope in Christ is not that we can get our list done and learn, learn to do better and eventually measure up and be okay. What we have in Christ is the reality that says this, he has accomplished all that, all that would be on the list to be accomplished for us. And because he accomplished it, by faith in him, we can actually live in that rest. We can know the righteousness of God, not the righteousness that will condemn us and cast us aside, but the righteousness that will make all things new. The one who is righteous, the one who is enough. Beloved, in your hurt and in your anger and in your despair, in Christ there is peace. Let's pray. Gracious, merciful God, Father in heaven, you know the complexity of our emotions. You know the complexity of our fears and our doubts and our anger and our frustrations and our hopes and our joys. In all of these things, we pray that you would cry out, that we, we cry out to you and pray that you would find us where we are and that you would not leave us here. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.